We're in Exodus chapter 12, and uh, we are going to spend, we're going to unpack a, a good portion of the chapter today. And uh, this is uh, the Passover. And I told somebody this week, you know, we can't pass over the Passover because um, this is the most, one of the most important events in the Old Testament. And uh, this shapes really the whole life of Israel. And, um, and from this point on, actually, this is one of the most significant events in the history of the world, really. And so we're going to study that together and uh, absorb all that we can. So let's um, jump into it. I'm going to read verses 21 through 23 to get started, and, uh, and then we'll unpack it. So Exodus 12, uh, 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood that is the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you, God, for your presence among us already this morning. I thank you for gathering us together and just the joy of the congregation singing your praises um, together, Father, I thank you for your, your presence here. I thank you for your word and, um, and God, how beautifully you paint the gospel in the Old Testament. And it's all telling the story of redemption, uh, culminating with your son. So, Father, I just thank you for your word and pray that you'd teach us by your Holy Spirit. And guide my speech, God, I need you. I need you. We need you to revive us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's uh, jump back in and give you a little bit of a context. Uh, last week we talked about Moses' call wherever he was just out tending the sheep and God appeared to him in a burning bush and gave him the call to go and, and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And, you know, over a period of um, a little while, Moses goes and Pharaoh hardens his heart against the Lord. And then the Lord hardens his heart. And you'll see that as you read those chapters uh, that God hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart, God hardened his heart. And there's a danger when you harden your heart against the things of the Lord because eventually he'll just give you over to those things. And, you know, conviction is a gift from God. And so... God sends, up to this point, nine plagues. This one, uh, Passover, is going to be the tenth plague. But he sends these nine plagues, these uh, incredible things that are coming against the nation of Egypt. And um, he was doing that, really, to attack uh, the gods of Egypt. So you have Egypt worshipped um, hundreds of gods, or you know, some say even thousands of gods that they had for different worship, but he is attacking, God is attacking in these ten plagues, the ten uh, biggest, I guess you would say, gods of Egypt. And we see this in uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, where he says, For I will pass through the land, of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land, both man and beast, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. So in these plagues, he is not just coming against Pharaoh, he's coming against all the false gods of Egypt. And, uh, and we see this, um, you can find different lists of this. Here's a few out of the ten. In uh, the turning the Nile to blood, he is attacking the god of uh, Num. He's the guardian of the Nile. There's actually a few gods that were associated with the Nile River. In the second plague, the plague of frogs, he's attacking the god um, Haget, the frog-headed goddess of birth. Um, whenever he's later, whenever he ascends the hail 
and, uh, and the locust. He's attacking these gods. Um, nut, the, god, the goddess Iris, the crop fertility god set, the storm god. So he's attacking all these gods in darkness on the ninth plague. Darkness was aimed at the sun god, Ray. So he's like, hey, Ray, you worship this god who brings you light from the sun, but God can overpower that god and put darkness over all the land. And, uh, and here in the tenth plague, he's attacking Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh was considered a god himself in their land or a representation of the god, the biggest god that they had. And so by attacking Pharaoh's son, his firstborn son, who was the heir to the throne, he is attacking this uh, one god that they all put their trust in, the god of Pharaoh. What God is doing is he's demonstrating that he is bigger and more powerful than any other god. See, God, whenever he's freeing Israel out of Egypt, he doesn't just want to get Israel out of Egypt. He wants to get Egypt out of Israel. See, they had spent the last 400 years in Egypt, and uh, they have been corrupted by the culture of Egypt. Many of them have uh, gone to worshiping these false gods and adopting these false gods into their own life. And so in this practice... God is saying, look, I am the one true, ultimate, most powerful God, Lord of lords, God of gods. He is above all. He had been silent for 400 years. They had begun to think that maybe these gods of Egypt were powerful than this God that made a promise to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God shows up and he shows out. And he says, I want you to know I am the one true God. And so he sends these nine plagues. Actually, we see this in Exodus 9, 14. If you'll flip back a page or two. He says, For this time I will send all my plagues uh, on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. And so he does this. And this last one, this culminating one is... Um, the death of the firstborn son. Um, and this institutes uh, the festival of Passover. So let's jump back in to uh, chapter 12, verse 1. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, uh, the land, in the land of Egypt, this, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first of the year for you. I'm going to talk about that a little later. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if, there, if in the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to each you shall eat and make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and on the lintels of your houses in which they eat it. Let's jump down to verse 12 where he says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. Okay, so the first idea here in the story of Passover is that our sin requires a death. Our sin requires a death. You see in verse 12, he says uh, that this is a judgment he is bringing against Egypt and Israel. Notice that that uh, the death angel is going to pass over all the people, not just Egypt. There had been plagues that only affected Egypt, and he spared his people, Israel. But on this one, everyone is subject to this judgment because all of them have sinned. Now, um, this judgment is a death in verse 12. He says, I will strike the firstborn in the land, both man and beast. It is a judgment of death for 
your sin. And so he says, take this lamb and uh, kill it. Take this lamb. He says, select a lamb on the 10th day of the month. You bring it in. It's got to be spotless. You take a, a few days to inspect it and make sure it's just right. And then on the 14th day, you slaughter the lamb. You uh, spread its blood over your door and you uh, cook it. You roast it whole and then you eat it. There's a, this is, this is um, filled with meaning here. But the picture is that our sin requires death. Our sin requires death. Animal sacrifice had been a part of offerings to the Lord from the very beginning. If you think about when was the first time that an animal was killed in the Bible. And it's right in the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, whenever, um, I think it's Genesis chapter 3, maybe verse 21, where it says, after Adam and Eve had sinned, they'd fallen, and they, they found themselves naked. They try to cover themselves with fig leaves, which that, that's kind of itchy and doesn't work very well. And so God, it says that he covered them with the an, skins of an animal. Skins of an animal. And you had to get, to get a skin off an animal, you have to kill it. Many scholars believe that the, the animal was even a lamb that he used to cover their sin. That's speculation, of course. In chapter 4 of Genesis, the first real worship service we see uh, is Cain and Abel coming to bring an offering to the Lord. And Abel brings an offering of an animal and sacrifices it, sheds its blood. Um, then later, after the flood, Noah, whenever the waters had subsided, he got off the ark, he took some of the animals and offered them as a sacrifice to the Lord. And later in Genesis chapter 22, we studied this, that Abraham, he goes up onto the mountain with his son Isaac, and um, ultimately they sacrifice a ram to the Lord. And then here, God institutes this Passover, this sacrificial system, the systematic killing of innocent animals to cover the sin of people. And throughout the years, from this point on, uh, millions of upon millions of animals, innocent little animals, would lose their life to cover the sin of people. Why the blood, though? This is a pretty messy way of dealing with things. Why all the blood? Maybe you've wondered that. How come we sing this song today, nothing but the blood of Jesus? And if you're new to the faith, you might be like, that is weird. Like, what is up with all the blood? Well, blood in the Bible is a symbol for life. If you lose your blood, you lose your life, right? In Leviticus 17.11, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. That there is life in the blood, so shedding the blood is, is covering the life and uh, God, back in the uh, very beginning in Exodus, in Genesis chapter 2, he says to um, Adam, he says, hey, look, I put place in this garden, and there are trees that are good to eat all over the place. Go and eat and enjoy. Just don't eat this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat it, you will surely die. There's a death of sorts that happens whenever we sin. And then Romans uh, gives us more detail in Romans 6.23 where he says, For the wages of sin is death, that our sin requires a death. James 1.15 says, Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so the requirement for our sin is death. And so in the shedding of blood or the killing of an animal, we are able to cover our sin. Whenever you kill an innocent animal, he allows the sinful person to live because it died as a substitute. Why would God allow so many animals to die, so much blood to be shed? I think this is an incredible picture about um, the severity of our sin, 
the wickedness of our sin. See, God hates it. As you think about all the death that had to occur to atone for the sins of his people. Like we, we like to lighten our sin and, and believing that it's not all that bad. We can always point to someone who's worse to make us feel better about ourselves. But the reality is that all of us have sin and all of our sin requires a death. Sin is expensive. It costs a life. It takes a life. It ends a life. And so our sin requires a death. The second thing we see is that God provides a substitute. Look at back at verse 5. Your lamb shall be without a blemish, male a year old. You shall take it from the sheep and from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill it, uh, their lamb at twilight. Then the la- then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. So he says, kill this lamb and apply the blood over your doorposts. And in verse 12, he says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that, that night and I will strike the firstborn in the land, both man and beast, on All the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. But the blood, verse 13, shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So he says... um, I'm going to strike the land with death. He says, I will strike the firstborn of the land of Egypt. See, God uh, regarded his people as his firstborn, his favored people. And Egypt refused to release the firstborn of God. And so then God required the firstborn of Egypt as a penalty, as judgment. And so their sin requires death. But then in God's mercy, he allows, he provides a substitute. He says, I'm going to bring death because that's the just penalty for your sin. But because I'm a merciful God, I am going to allow a substitute. I will allow you to take a lamb and kill it and apply its blood as atonement for your sin, as a substitute in your place. You can imagine as gruesome as this would have been, and you have these, uh, they take this lamb, and it's under a year old, or right at a year old. It's spotless, it's cute, it's this beautiful little baby lamb. And they bring, it says they bring it into their home on the 10th day until the 14th day, and so you can imagine they get a little attached to this little lamb. Maybe they name the lamb. What What do you think they would have named the lamb? Lamb chop. Someone says lamb. Someone said lamb chop. That's terrible. But then you can imagine, as it's the 14th day, and dad goes out and he has to slaughter this little lamb, little lamb chop. And then the questions from the kids, right? God, what are you doing? What are you doing? And um, you can imagine. Dad looking at the firstborn in the family and saying, look, we got to kill this lamb so you can live. God's allowed for us to take the life of this little lamb so that we can spare your life. And it's this amazing, merciful picture of a substitute. This lamb has to be without blemish, perfect, innocent, pure, and this is a clear foreshadowing of Christ. Um, Ken, Kent Hughes says this about, about this lamb. He says, there's an obvious progression here with the lamb serving as a representative for larger and larger groups of people. He says, at first, God provided one lamb for one person with Uh, Abraham and Isaac. 
up on the mountain. Next, God provided one lamb per household, the first Passover. This lamb is for one household. Then God provided one sacrifice for the whole nation at the Day of Atonement. Finally, the day came when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away a sin of the world. God was planning all along for one lamb to die for one world. The Lamb of God. And Christ is, uh, Paul calls Christ our Passover Lamb in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, where he says, For Christ, our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed. And there's good indication in John 19 that, that Jesus was actually crucified on Passover as our Passover lamb. See, this whole picture, we got to look at the Old Testament as telling the story of redemption. And there's these beautiful types of Christ in the Old Testament, these pictures, these patterns. And here, the lamb, the Passover lamb is a picture of Christ. Here's some parallels between Jesus and this lamb at the first Passover. First, we see that this Passover lamb is to be without blemish, spotless. And Christ was the only person who lived perfect, spotless, sinless life. The spotless lamb. The Passover lamb had to be examined for a period of four days uh, in its selection for killing. He says, you shall keep it until the 14th day. And Jesus lived a meticulously examined life, especially uh, right before his crucifixion. There was a, a season where he was, he was examined heavily by the religious leaders. In his death, Jesus was touched with fire, the fire of God's judgment and wrath. He says, roast the lamb. Don't boil it. Don't eat it raw. You can be like, I wouldn't want to eat it raw anyways. I've never heard of lamb tartare, right? That's kind of bizarre. But it was not uncommon. The pagan uh, cultures of the day, they would um, eat raw their sacrifices to their pagan false gods. So he's like, don't eat it raw. Don't boil it. Roast it. And we see that this is a picture of God's wrath poured down on the Lamb of God on the cross of Christ. In his death, Jesus received the bitter cup of God's judgment. The bitterness, the, he tells them in this ceremony um, of unleavened bread to eat bitter herbs. And Christ received the bitter judgment of God. Um, it was the only blood of Jesus, his actual poured out life, that atoned for sin. In the same way that this lamb atoned for the sin of the people in the household, Jesus' blood atones for our sin. The work of Jesus has to be received fully um, with none left in reserve. I'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, the other thing is in Exodus 12, verse 46, uh, it says, It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house. You shall not break any of its bones. It's like, as you prepare this lamb, don't break any of its bones. And in John 19, 36, when Jesus on the cross says, these things took place so that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones were broken. As brutal as his crucifixion was, they didn't break any bones so that you would connect it right back to the Passover lamb. The Passover work of Jesus for his people is uh, the dawn and prelude to their freedom. So notice in the Passover, they have this sacrifice, they kill this lamb, and it precedes the freedom they're going to experience from slavery. And Christ's sacrifice on the cross preludes our freedom in Christ from the slavery of sin. This whole idea of the atoning work, the power of the blood of Jesus is all throughout the New Testament. Romans 5, 9, I'm going to move quickly through these references just so you can see it. Romans 5, 9 says, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
Ephesians 1, 7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to His riches of His grace. Hebrews 13, 12 says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His blood. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the fruitile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver of gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of the Lamb, without blemish or spot. I love that he calls it the precious blood of Christ. 1 John 1, 7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us. From all sin. Hebrews 9 20, 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no forgiveness of sins. So it's this beautiful. There's power in the blood of Jesus. It is the shed blood of Jesus that covers our sin, and he substitutes himself in our place on the cross. He says here in this passage in verse 8 through 11, You shall eat the flesh that night roasted on fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall not let any of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. And so in this, he says... You must eat it all. Roasted with its legs and its inner part. You must eat it all. Consume it all. You couldn't just say, you know what, I think I'm just going to take the lamb chops. I think that's what I'm just going to have the lamb chops tonight. I don't need the rest. When you come to Christ, you have to receive all of Jesus, not just parts of him. This is not a uh, build a Jesus workshop, okay? You ever been to the build a bear workshop? Me either, but I, I can imagine <laughs> you go in there and you choose an animal and you choose how much stuffing goes in it and you choose its clothes and you choose its inserts and you choose all the accessories that go with it and you get to kind of assemble your own little stuffed animal. But this is not a build a Jesus workshop. You can't just say, you know what, I'm going to take the parts that I like. I think I'm going to take the, like that forgiveness thing, that's pretty good. I'm going to take the love people stuff. I'm going to take all these things out and we kind of build our own Jesus that's why it's like whenever someone says that they believe in Jesus, it's like, which Jesus? Because you can, you, many people, they just build their own Jesus. But it's not like that. You can't do that. You leave out the holiness. I leave out the righteousness stuff. I leave out the pray for your enemies. I think I'm going to leave that to the side. I'm just going to build my own Jesus. This is not a have it your way, Jesus. This is an all or nothing Jesus. That our sin requires death, but God provides a substitute in His Son, Jesus Christ, by His mercy. But, the third thing is this, we must apply the blood of the Lamb by faith. We must apply the blood of the Lamb by faith. Skip down to verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select the lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. He says, kill the lamb. There's three things that he tells them to do in this section. And the first one is kill the lamb. And we already talked about that, the significance of shedding the blood and killing the lamb and the substitute. But he says, kill the lamb. Verse 22, he says, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood, that is the basin, and touch it to the lentil and to the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. So he, so he says, kill the lamb and then apply the blood. It's not okay to just kill the lamb. You have to apply the blood. And I don't think it's um, happenstance that he tells them to use a hyssop uh, branch, a hyssop plant to apply this 
blood. He didn't say use an olive branch or a fig branch. He said use a hyssop branch. And in Leviticus chapter 14, verse 6, the ceremony for cleansing a leper used a hyssop to apply the blood, if you were going to cleanse a leper. In Hebrews 19, hyssop was used for the purification of water. David, in his great psalm of repentance, in Psalm 51, 7, says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop was always associated or synonymous with being connected with purification and cleansing. Purification and cleansing through sacrifice. Hyssop was even connected to Jesus' great sacrifice for our sin in John 19, 28 through 30 points this out. It says, after this, and this is John 19, Jesus, knowing that all was to be finished, so he's hanging on the cross, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch. Not a fig branch. Not an olive branch. On a hyssop branch. And held it to his mouth. And when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. When you apply the blood of Jesus to your life, you are cleansed. You are purified. You are justified. But it's more than just killing the lamb. It's not just killing the lamb that saves you. You have to apply the blood to the doorpost of your, your house, it says. So imagine, if you will, if an Israelite, one of the Israelites, said, you know what, I, I, I don't want to do that. That seems a little, a little wild to me. And so, you know what, I'm just going to eat my lamb dinner, and uh, I'm just going to go to bed. I, mean, I believe that maybe... The fact that I'm just an Israelite, I'm part of God's chosen people, I'm part of the promise of God to Abraham, that's going to be enough for me, I'm just going to go to sleep. Killed the lamb, but didn't apply the blood. And the firstborn would have been lost. But imagine also, if you will, if there's an Egyptian that hears these, these instructions and he says, seems good to me. And so this Egyptian, for his family, he kills the lamb and he follows the instructions and he takes the blood. He applies it to his house. Even though he is an Egyptian, the firstborn would have been saved. Because it's not just killing the lamb, it's applying the blood that saves you. See, Jesus dying for the world is an amazing thing, but until you apply the sinless sacrifice of the Son to your life through repentance and faith, you will not be saved. See, believing in Jesus, believing Jesus died is history. Believing Jesus died for you is salvation. He says, this blood will be a sign for you. Let's go back to verse 7. Take some of the blood, put it on the doorpost and on the lentil of the house to which they eat it. Verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when you see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So he says, apply this blood, and this blood's going to be a sign for you. But then he also says, when I see it, he'll know something. Our sign, as we look at the, the blood-stained door, the sign for us will be um, knowing that my sin has been removed. That my sin has been Removed, been paid for. This is the theological term called expiation. Expiation is the idea that, um, that your sin can be taken from you, removed off of you, paid for. So when we look at the bloodstained door, he's like, well, you're going to see a sign. That sign's going to be like, your sin has been paid for. But then when God looks at the door, when he sees the blood, 
He's going to remember that this house, the payment has been paid for. A lamb died in their place for their sin. So the wrath of God is satisfied. It is turned away. That's the theological term, propitiation. So expiation, he's removed my sin. Propitiation is that the wrath of God is satisfied and therefore passes over me. This is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That a substitute allows God's wrath to pass over you and to allow you to pass from death to life. This is a beautiful doctrine. God provides a substitute for you. But notice how they apply the blood. Um, Verse 22, take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that's in the basin, touch it to the lentil, to the two doorposts, with the blood that is in the basin. Touch it to the lentil and to the two doorposts. I just wonder, I brought this just for this, uh, well, Darren brought this for us, just for this, but you guys have to wonder about how God had them apply the blood to the doorpost. So he says, apply it to the lentil. That's the top. And then he says, apply it to the doorpost. And you have to imagine that whenever you apply blood, it's not like a clean, easy, it's like a messy thing. So you got to imagine that maybe some blood might have dripped down the door. I wonder if in this motion of applying the blood to the door of their house, if part of the image is this symbol of the cross, that we are applying the blood of Jesus to our life. So when we see the cross of Christ, we see, man, that's what it took to pay for my sin, and he did it for me. And when God sees the cross of Christ, he says, their sin has been paid for, my wrath has been satisfied, the punishment is over. The blood is applied. So he says, kill the lamb, apply the blood, and then finally he says this, stay inside. Stay inside. Look at that in verse 22. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. So, kill the lamb and apply its blood and then stay inside. Why are they staying inside? Well, look at verse 23. He says, For the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lentil and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So the judgment of God is coming. And he calls the the judgment of God the destroyer who's going to strike the firstborn uh, and bring the judgment of God on the houses that don't have the blood of the lamb. Now the destroyer, it's interesting, this word destroyer is the same word to describe uh, how God destroyed everyone in the flood when he judged the world. It's also the same word described Uh, for how God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness and their evil. So the same destroyer that flooded the earth and the same destroyer that rained down God's fiery judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah is going to visit the houses of Egypt tonight. That the judgment of God is going to be placed you're going to want to stay inside. See, um, you're going to be tempted. Maybe you're going to be afraid. Maybe as you begin to hear the cries of your neighbors as they've lost their children, you're going to be afraid. And your fear is going to tempt you to go look outside for other means to protect you from the destroyer. And he's saying there is no other provision for your protection than to stay inside. 
You must believe by faith that the blood is enough. That nothing but the blood can save you. See, the Lord is only looking for the blood to pass over. That's all he's looking for, is the blood. What he's saying is that there is nothing you can do to save yourself. It's not that you prayed enough. It's not that you did enough good works. It's not that you're a good enough moral person. It's only by the blood of Jesus being applied to your life that the destroyer will pass over you. And we might give lip service to God and we might say that we've applied the blood, but then when we go outside of the cross of Christ to look for something else to save us, that's a dangerous place to be. Because he says, hey, kill the lamb and apply the blood, but then stay inside. Matthew 24 says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. That the mark of true salvation is perseverance. Those who remain in Christ until the end. Remain under the covering of the blood of Jesus. When the destroyer visits you. My only hope is in the blood of Jesus. In the blood of Jesus. Then in verse 24 he says... You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. He says this Passover, he gives them uh, the Passover lamb, the shedding of blood, the sacrifice for sin, the meal of the consuming the whole lamb, and he gives them this unleavened bread to eat. And he says this is something that you will observe uh, forever. And we might say, as, um, as kind of Gentile believers, I don't know about you, but maybe, maybe um, the annual Passover celebration is not a part of, of your tradition. And you might look at a verse like this and say, is, should we be celebrating the Passover every year like uh, the Hebrews do, like the Israelites do? Let me answer that for you right here. Um, Christ in the last Passover that he observed instituted a new Passover. Whereas in Luke 22 verse 14 through 20 it says when the hour came he reclined at table with the apostles with him and he said I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So he's eating this Passover meal with his disciples. He says, for I tell you, I will not eat of it um, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So how do we obey this verse in verse 24, where he says that this right you shall observe forever? Well, whenever Christ gave us the institution, whenever he instituted the Lord's Supper, what we call communion. Every time we partake in communion, we are remembering this right forever, that Christ is the fulfillment of the Passover. He is the true Passover lamb. And whenever we take the little cracker, remember his body broken for us, and whenever we drink the juice to remember his blood shed for us, we are partaking in this right forever. We are remembering the true Passover lamb. I wish it was Communion Sunday. That would have been great. That would have been a great thing to have. So we, our sin requires a death. But our God, in his mercy, provides a substitute. But we must apply the blood of the Lamb uh, by faith. That it's not just enough that, that Christ died on the cross. You have to apply that to your own life. And, uh, but finally is this, salvation changes everything. 
Salvation changes everything. Look back at the first verses of this chapter. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. What he's saying is what I'm about to do here in the Passover, what I'm about to do in delivering you from Egypt is a new thing. I am instituting a new thing here. Now, uh, later they will establish a civil calendar. And so then they kind of have these two calendars. They have the civil calendar and the ceremonial calendar or the religious calendar. Um, but here God is providing uh, a new spiritual calendar. He's saying, orient your lives around this event. This event, the Passover and the deliverance from Egypt, is going to be the event that marks your life from here on out. So similarly to how we follow a civil calendar like you know, we do here, but then we have spiritual holidays. That's why we're like emphasizing right before the right before uh, the Resurrection Sunday that we celebrate, emphasizing fasting and praying and preparing for that. Like, you're going to orient your life around something. Might as well orient it around the life of Christ. So he's like, hey, I'm instituting something new here. This is a spiritual birthday of sorts for them. In Isaiah 43, God says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? 2 Corinthians 9.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God's doing a new thing. And whenever you come to Christ, he's making you new. All things are new. It changes everything. So he's like, hey, this is going to change your calendar. And he says, this is going to change. You, you get a new congregation. It says, tell the, all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day, tell all the congregation, this is the first time the word congregation is used. He's like, from this point on, you're going to be seen as a congregation, as a community of faith. So you get this new, you get a new calendar, you get a new congregation. I better have another C for alliteration, but I didn't plan that. You get new freedom. That doesn't start with a C. Look at verse 27. You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the house of the people of Israel and in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. He struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. Um... So in the Passover, there's this twofold work. First, that the enemy is defeated. He struck the Egyptians. But then second, the people were set free. And they were given a new identity with new promises, a new walk, a new life together. That they were spared their house. They, he delivered their houses. See, God frees you from your sin. He defeats your enemy. But then he delivers you to live a pure and righteous life. In the midst of all this, he gives this uh, feast of unleavened bread. Verse 15 says, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your house. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And so he's, it's the feast of unleavened bread. And unleavened leaven was a symbol of sin. And so if you had sin, leaven, removing the leaven was this image of removing the sin out of your life. But notice that whenever he institutes the Feast of Unleavened Bread is after the substitutionary atonement of the lamb, not before. He says, you kill the lamb, you apply the blood, you stay inside, and then you eat unleavened bread. And it is not are, we, we kind of get that backwards many times. We say, you know what, I'm going to clean myself up. I'm going to get the leaven out of my life before I come to Christ. But it's not about cleaning yourself up to come to Christ. It's coming to Christ as you are, and then he will clean you up. That we are called to a righteous and holy life, but only after the blood of the lamb has been applied to our life. And look how they respond. You shall say, verse 27, you shall say it is 
the sacrifice of the Lord of Passover. He passed over the houses of Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. Look at this. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Look at the next verse. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So we see their response was this. They worshipped and they obeyed. They worshipped and they obeyed. That is an appropriate response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. To obey it, to receive it, to apply it to your life, and to worship the King. So Christ's blood was shed to cover your sins. Will you apply it by faith to your life today? Kill the lamb. Apply the blood. Stay inside. Father in heaven, I, I just thank you for the blood of the lamb, the blood of your son Jesus, the once and all payment for our sin. Lord, I thank you that even though our sin deserves death, that you provide a substitute for us. But God, you leave the invitation open. The lamb has been slain. Christ, you died on the cross for our sin. And it's available to all who will apply it to their life by repentance and faith. So God, I pray if there's anyone in the room today who is far from you, who is not saved, God, maybe even they think they're saved, but honestly, they have been looking to other things. They have left the house. They've wandered searching for other ways to protect their soul. God, I pray that today would be the day where we trust in nothing but the blood of Jesus. That we'd be reminded afresh the blood of Jesus has been applied to our life and we have nothing to fear because we are in Christ. Lord, I pray that we'd see it change everything about our life. The way we think, the things we desire, the places we go, the things we do, the way we spend our time, God, that it would change everything about us, that we'd live lives fully devoted to Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. So God, would you do a powerful work among us today as we remember you as the true and ultimate Passover lamb. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.